New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Jan Valenden. He has a bachelor's and master's in computer science, a PhD in marketing analysis, and close to 10 years of industry experience. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Marketing is the business of understanding a marketplace, competitors, defining positioning, and promoting products to target customers. Marketers are tasked with developing the strategy to boost sales and revenue. And one of the ways they can do this is through customer base analysis. To start things off and get everyone on the same page, can you describe what customer base analysis is? So what I would say is that it's a set of techniques that allow us to look at what our customers have done previously and then extrapolate or forecast what their purchase behavior will be in the future. So that's that's it in a nutshell. Great. And when we, if it's about predicting the future, looking at what happened in the past, knowing what to do about it. Prior to your work in developing this new way to do this, there have been other approaches. This is something that that people are doing. Can you outline some of the previous approaches and what their drawbacks or limitations are? Yeah. So like you said, this is a pretty old question that people have been asking themselves. And already since the 80s, there has been quite a successful family of methods that are known under the umbrella term buy till you die models. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit of a funny name, but there's actually some fairly deep insight hidden in, in, in in the term. The idea is that a typical customer will enter the relationship with the firm by making a first purchase or making a first visit to to an office, let's say. And then there's the lifetime of the customer continues with some repeat purchases until eventually the relationship ends. So most customers follow this kind of trajectory of maybe being fairly excited about buying a new product in in the beginning and then kind of gradually kind of dropping off of course that's that's really the average customer but there's many different types of customers and these models these buy till you die models have been fairly successful in allowing you to capture a, a whole range of heterogeneous customer behaviors mm-hmm. and prior to your work what are some of the, the limitations or drawbacks to, to what already existed? I would say the strength of these approaches is that they have this kind of built-in knowledge. So in, inside of the design of the model is this kind of built-in knowledge, a human knowledge about what the 
average customer behaves like. There's many different types of customer firm relationships. And well, it also is, then, it, it, yeah. just I want to sort of flesh that out. If mm. it's if it depends upon that built-in knowledge, then the model is only as good as that particular human and their knowledge, right? I mean, is that a limitation, would you say? It, exactly. So so that that's kind of what I was getting at. So it covers a whole range of kind of the classic customer behaviors. But of course, there's edge cases and in there's there's a number of, let's say, model assumptions that are built into these bytelidine models that are a bit too rigid, basically. So when we were thinking about how to improve on these on these approaches, we were asking ourselves, what are these, what are these limitations? What mm. are these edge cases that might be important and how we could address that? And just for listeners who who maybe they haven't used a model like this and they think, well, oh, it sounds like a good idea. When you talk about a rigid assumption, can you just give an example of one type of rigid assumption so that they can fold that into their thinking? Yeah. So the the gold standard by till you die model, the Pareto NBD, only requires three numbers that describe every individual customer's customer. So you only need to know when was the last time the customer has made a purchase, how many purchases has the customer made in the past. And sometimes for the more advanced versions, you also keep track of the monetary value of, of these purchases. But if you think of it like these three numbers, I mean, they, they say a lot about a customer, but in this day and age, when we're tracking every single little thing about our customer's behavior, you can imagine how much more data we can uh, You could leverage. use, right. Exactly. This, this isn't taking advantage of things. It's also it feels very historic. And so in terms of knowing knowing something different, so the, the mm. model that you created, it improves and innovates regarding inputs and also outputs, right? Yes, exactly. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, these, these old older models, they are very data efficient and they they really get the most out of this kind of limited information but i was actually coming into this research from a, a completely different field i was in computer science so i did not have this deep market knowledge or insight about how customers behave so so for me i was looking for a model that helped me basically learn directly from the data without me having to become an expert on customer behavior. So using using the model to directly learn from the observed behavior, that was kind of the goal. So get rid of these assumptions and let the model learn directly from what we've observed. Well, one of the one of the features that is pretty important is auto in terms of your inputs is auto feature extraction can you explain what that what that means you know sort of let's start at the highest level auto feature extraction what is that yeah so this this is a crucial property of a deep learning deep learning model where we do not we do not describe the inputs to the model in any way except for saying okay maybe here's here's an input that can only be zero or one, or here's an input that can be between zero and 10. So 
on, on this level we have to we have to make these descriptions but i'm not going to explain in any way to the model okay this is related to the MERS income or this is related to the customer's geographical location so we depend so it's, in on- some ways it's really stripping out any assumptions you're just saying this is data to the model exactly. is that is that a good simplification okay exactly so as long as you have historical data so some kind of time series data some kind of of events that you collect on a larger number of customers as long as you have data like that it is you can use a model like the one we've developed well so i have two questions related to to obviously it's time series so that means you have to you a brand new company wouldn't be able to perhaps leverage what you've built, at least not yet. Now, one of the things that marketers, a lot of the conversation, even if they themselves are are not <laughs> data wizards themselves, they have other people that they, they trust to do the data work. And one of the conversations is around first-party data and third-party data, because the third-party data it may go away, how much we can see what people are doing. So does your model use first-party data or third-party data or whatever data you can get your hands on? How, how What kind of data are we talking about? Yeah, so it really doesn't matter okay. where, where the data comes from as long as it's in a specific format and the, the, the model works in a way where it will output data it will it will basically continue the time series that that you that you input so if you have a, re- a record of someone visiting a doctor's office for example so it's a series of events it can forecast the continuation of this series so it, if you have let's say one one year worth of doctor's visits then you can use the model to extend this t- time series into the future by another year and the the input data will be matched by by the output data so it it's kind of in a continuation machine so okay. the outputs look just like the inputs basically okay so the other piece of my question is neural networks they use models to train right and so how large a data set does does the model that you've built only work for a business with a large existing data set or can having you having done your work, can a smaller company that maybe doesn't have as much data going in leverage it? Yeah. So in the paper that we've written, the smallest data set that we had was this multi-channel merchant data set with 1,379 customers. So that that was the s- smallest set I've I've tried. But obviously, neural networks, and this is one of the major benefits of this approach, they scale really well on big data. So mm. whereas some of these older models would struggle with increased right. customer base, the, the deep learning models really benefit from having more data to learn right. from. So if you have a data lake, that's exciting because you have this giant lake to to pull upon. The examples that used in the paper are primarily, I think they're even all B2C. Could Mm -hmm. a B2B company use it? You have maybe fewer customers, but you have a lot of data points. What could a B2B 
business use this? It's a good question. I have not tried tried that myself, but I don't see why not. It's really a matter of do you have enough data? I would I would say I would say if there's less than a thousand customers, that's just my feeling. Okay, mm-hmm. if there's less than a thousand customers, less than one thousand time series to learn from, you might you might be beginning to struggle. But as long as there's enough data, you know, the, the model has no knowledge of what type of business relationship it is, right? It only sees a time series. So, you know, I see. There's, there's so no it, it's right. Okay. But again, I, I this is the the magical for somebody who's not mathematical, the magical aspect of of these deep learning programs is that they it feels like they're thinking all on their own. It it feels that way. So one of the examples you cite in your paper was for a charity. And I think this is a kind of use that it had a lot of points going on here. And I was wondering if you could walk through that example from the point where you you start with what's their challenge to then how the how the model worked. So can you take us through that? Yeah, so this example came from a large US charity where we were able to observe the donor behavior for quite some time. I believe that we used roughly three years worth of historical data, but you can use less. That's just the the main example in the paper that people might find. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the input data that we have is just basically records that say on this day, this customer gave this much money to this charity. And we have about 21,000 of these customers in in this customer base. Mm-hmm. And yeah, obviously the, the goal of the exercise is to take, let's say, the first three years of the history of, of this charity and project what will these donors do in the next year. So it's a scenario that has been explored in several previous papers. That's kind of why we used it as the the headline example in our paper as well, because you can really show the difference between the different models. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was new in in our analysis is that because of the granularity of the data that that we're using remember we're not just using the three numbers describing the customer like how many transactions in the past when was the last one but we're using the entire history so we're looking at okay when did these transactions occur on which dates as well, right? So we can, for example, learn that around Christmas time, lots of people tend to give to this right. charity. And this is kind of a repeat pattern, right? So we can we can pull out a, mu- a much more kind of fine-grained understanding of the customer's behavior. So in terms of, can I just ask yeah. a question? So you have all this other data, the form of it, you, you had mentioned earlier that you, you need to have it in a, if the format of the data mattered. So from a, a practical implementation standpoint, a charity, they have three years history, they know various things. They have to data enter it all though, into, to start this model going in terms of, and then they have to continue to data enter it. Yeah. So you need to, you need to keep track of transactions that you make with your customers. And most companies do that 
right. by default, right? And in terms of the inputs of of the of the model, you can imagine it as as kind of a a long a long series that corresponds to the customer's behavior in each week, let's say, for example. So if we have three years worth of customer data, that means we have some 156 weeks, mm-hmm. right? So it's in you in the most basic form, you can you can input the data as a long time series, zeros and ones, where zero means on this week there was no transaction, and one means there was some transaction on this week. So the model will just see a long line of zeros and ones where the one right is the, the transaction. One, exactly. So other exactly. other data you would fold in because you have this opportunity to add more. Mm-hmm. Would that be we sent a mailer to this person? Mm-hmm. We reached sent an email to this person, and mm-hmm. I guess it is important that it be linked to this person got this email, or is it just exactly these are all the transactions? That's one bunch of information. These are all the mailings. That's another bunch. Or is it actually this particular person received this particular mm-hmm. thing that, that it's all linked to a particular customer? Yeah, we we link it to a specific customer. So okay. um, when we are learning from the customer data, if we have additional information on top of the transaction behavior, we will feed it in in parallel. So we will say, okay, there was no transaction this week, but there was a, there was a mail sent to this customer, right? So instead of one input, the, the model will have two inputs. One is for transactions. The second one is for, is for mail. And the and the mail input just takes another series of zeros and ones, which this time denote, okay, no mail or some mail was sent. Well, and yes, absolutely. And what about demographic information, you know, how wealthy a person is, like what, let's say we're using zip codes as a proxy for how wealthy somebody is or their Mm -hmm. age. Those aren't time series, but would they be fed into the model as well? Yeah. So you can just feed them in as another time series, which has, which doesn't change basically. Right. So, or it sometimes it does change. Sometimes people move and then their location changes. Their age might be changing, but for the model, it really doesn't matter. If, if you feed in an input that is completely irrelevant, for example, Mm. because of the automated feature extraction, the, the model will just learn to ignore it. You know, that's I see. Kind of right. Benefit. That's so any. So for instance, that was actually I was I was going to mm. that exact question, which is what if it turns out? I mean, and could it tell us of your five mailings, only one seemed to result in donation? Would that help us? Mm. You understand which actions, which inputs that you're doing actually tend to be important. Does the model help you there? Yeah. So you're asking about basically learning some causal relationships. And right. that's that's one of the, I would say, weak, weak spots of this approach, mostly because we are using a neural network to, to do this. And they are these are famously difficult to interpret in terms of, okay, what is the actual mechanism that the network is using to make these predictions or these decisions? So there's ways to look into this, but yeah, this is not a strength of the model, I would say. Right. You could see a correlation, but not a causal. 
Is that exactly okay? Okay. All right. Well, that actually answered. I was I was also thinking I, I work with various people who are involved in charity fundraising and mm-hmm. it, a lot is often put into personal relationships with big donors, mm-hmm. big money gifts. And they would bristle at the idea that a model could predict what somebody was going to do, that mm. that it, it all has to do with John Smith had this conversation. And it's because it was John Smith who had this conversation that the person donated it really, it, that that was what made it happen, as opposed to there's a cadence, we can see this person is likely to do these things. I guess the model, you have three years, and then it can play out in the future three years. Mm -hmm. So the idea then is that you can change the future, right? If you take Mm -hmm. steps that, that, so what are the kinds of things that the, in the case of your charity, what were you able to, were you able to identify things about customers that would then help them to change that future? So we looked at these two interesting groups of customers and I call them in the paper, opportunity customers and customers at risk. Mm -hmm. So the first group, the opportunity one, those are customers who are gradually increasing their transaction activity with time. And this actually goes kind of directly against the assumption of these older buy till you die models, right? Because there you always expect kind of a A um, degradation over time. Yeah, exactly. So, so This is one example where an assumption-free model like ours is a better choice because it just matches the data. It's able to capture this kind of behavior. So, for example, you can you can analyze the the forecast and and see. Okay, here's a group of customers where we are predicting the relationship to continue improving. So maybe we are going to look at how we are managing this relationship and either continue what what we're doing or maybe put even more resources into it because there's clearly an opportunity to increase their transaction frequency or or the spend, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The second group is also an important one. Those are the customers at risk. And the way I define them in the paper is those are customers who make more than the average amount of transactions in in the observed period. So when we're looking at the history of transactions, those are above average customers who nonetheless never return in the predicted period. So those are customers who in reality, they end the relationship with the firm, right? So those are very interesting because those are above average spenders, right, who nonetheless are at risk of exiting the relationship. So if you can detect this kind of change in behavior, and this again, it's it's kind of a, a, a mode shift in the behavior of the customer, right? So the customer went from large amount of spending to zero spending, right? And this again, kind of doesn't match the assumptions of the bitilidine model. So if you can detect this kind of change in advance, then maybe you can do something as a manager before it happens. So you can tell the model can identify which people are are being quiet from which ones who are disengaging. Is that mm-hmm. okay? So, I mean, honestly, it's it's really crystal ball stuff. The opportunity and 
and risk. And in the paper, you the, there's a comment about, well, subscription-based businesses can see their churn. But I have to say that if they could identify who will churn before they get to the churn event horizon, if you will, if I'm Netflix mm-hmm. and my subscriber numbers are, you know, my stock price will go down if I don't know who is liable to churn or what seems to coincide with that churn. And I have lots of data because I'm a data driven company, I would think this would work for them as well, wouldn't it? Yeah. I, I, I would think. Yeah, I, I, I'm I, not at the liberty to give, give all details, but I have been working with a subscription-based company and um, it's not it's not entirely different from what we covered in the paper so it's just another time series right right where you have one special type of event which is canceling the membership but right. in terms of the input data it's not it's not very different well you could also if we think about subscription especially let's say streaming service how many times are they viewing again if we were talking about your your people at risk. Maybe somebody viewed a lot, viewed a lot, viewed a lot, and all of a sudden they stop. And is that some an opportunity that it, it just seems so, so relevant? You made your model available. You made it open source. Do I need to have a data scientist on my team to take advantage of it? Or let's be honest, because it's very interesting, very exciting. Mm. If I want to check it out, what should I be prepared to know that I need to do on my end? I would say, yes, you do need a, a data scientist. I'm not the best programmer, to be to be honest. So the, the example that I published, I, I tried my best, but it's not <laughs> it's not something production ready. So okay, okay. if you wanted to apply this in, in your company, there's going to be some adjustments that you will have to make. But I, I would say the, the base example is not. It would get you started. It would get yeah, you started. Exactly. Exactly. And then you can hire me to consult for your company. <laughs> exactly. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you so much for doing the work. It's really interesting stuff and for taking the time to walk us through it. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a pleasure. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend Rob Norton, the voice artist who recorded our open, and of course, all of you, the members of our audience. Thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next.